Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with the people, stories, and shenanigans that make Cincinnati Museum Center what it is. I'm Cody Efner, and I'm joined today by Whitney Owens, our Chief Learning Officer. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you. Hello. I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you. Now, usually, my joke is always, you know someone's title, like verbatim, but you have no idea what they do, or you know what they do, but you don't know their title. Yours is a little deceptive because, number one, people learn in all different ways, but you don't just handle education as we would think because you hear chief learning officer and you think, oh, uh, education and programs, right? But yours is much more robust than that. So how would you define your role? I, first of all, I love my title because when I get something wrong, uh, I can say, oh, so sorry, still learning. It's in my title. (laughs) Uh, But I, what I do at Museum Center is I lead education, community engagement, uh, exhibit development, research, and collections. And I also get to do some cool work in exhibitions with the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center, our sister institution. I like that you you use your job title as if it has training wheels, like that learning is the is the training wheels. Yes. Uh that's that's pretty good. That's fun. I would love to incorporate that more into my my title. It, yeah, there are a lot of fun museum titles out there. Uh one of my favorite slash cringiest is when somebody is like chief creative officer or chief imagination officer because I feel like they'll be in like an earnings reporting meeting or something and they'll say something about like I don't know the budget and somebody will be like you know that wasn't all that creative like I don't think that was super imaginative try harder uh I did call myself chief cheer officer the other day uh that's legit you have you have the costumes to back that up yeah yeah um they were they were like, oh, what's your what's your name and title? And I said, you can go with uh, CCO, Chief Chair Officer. And they were kind of like lining up the camera and they paused and looked up and they're like, wait, is that real? <laughs> I was like, it could have been. We need cards. I know. I know a person who can make those. <laughs> um, I also know the person who, who Chiron's all of our videos and he's <laughs> editing this right now. He'll cut all this stuff. Don't worry. Nice. Um, so of that robust oversight that you have and the the people that you're involved with which of those speaks to your little museum soul because you like museums are in your blood right mm-hmm. that you've I'm you're, a lifelong museum yeah. person how long have you been working in museums at this point more than 25 years uh believe it or not so you started when you were six I did it wow, was amazing <laughs> I started um I went to college in Chicago at Northwestern University and between my Junior and senior year, I got an internship at the Field Museum uh, in downtown Chicago in public relations. And my job that summer was amazing. It was interviewing all of their curators to um, create like a media guide to their work. And so uh, the idea was if you are, let's say, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune and you're doing a story that involves ants, you'd like look up one of our entomologists at the Field Museum, um, interview them, get the museum into the news. So I, who was uh, an English major uh, suddenly was interviewing these incredibly brainy science people that are like super knowledgeable in like a really narrow topic. So like the world's foremost expert on like African tree shrews or something. Um, But learning about what they did and why it mattered in the world and learning that they needed somebody to translate uh, the incredible work that they were doing for the public was just like a revelation to me. And I had this, you know, moment in the Field Museum that said, if I can get back back here. By God, one day I will. Um, And so that set my whole path. And I ended up going to graduate school in London for um, basically arts administration. And then after that, I um, I, London was a wonderful experience. I interned in the Natural History Museum, went to museums and theaters and and other arts-based institutions as often as I could. London's a great place to do that. And then when I moved back to the States after graduate school, I think I applied for like every single job on the Field Museum's website, including ones I was like wildly underqualified for. (laughs) like director of corporate sponsorship, having done approximately like zero fundraising at 23. Uh, And finally, they they took pity on me. And I started um, working with one of their vice presidents who led exhibits, education, marketing, PR, stores and restaurants, and just getting to sit at the table with um, actually it was all women who led those departments and just learn from them was a really incredible experience. Uh, And then I went on to take a position in exhibitions and was there for another like 11 years, um, traveling around the world with a T-Rex and other things. And uh, after that, went to a science center in Cleveland for a couple years and came here to CMC eight years ago. I I have to apologize on one hand because you you got to travel around the world with a T-Rex. You got to walk in 
um, underneath the T-Rex every single day. And I was with a field trip today. Uh, my niece was here. Her school was here on a field trip. And so I, I saw her and I was walking around with her a little bit. And this kid goes, what's that dinosaur? What's that dinosaur? What's that dinosaur? And he goes, well, do you have a T-Rex? I said, we have a T-Rex skull. And he goes, but that's it? I said, yeah. And he goes, oh. And he just turned around and walked away from me. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, You're like, we don't need your pity, kid. We've got so many cool specimens. And I was like, I looked at the chaperone. It was my sister-in-law. I'm like, what? He's not impressed by our unique <laughs> scientific specimen. Whatever. Did you like shame her on her parenting of your niece? Well, no, because it wasn't my niece. She, oh, okay. she knew better. This was like the coolest my niece ever thought I was, I think. Uh, but she was very excited to see me. It was very sweet. But I was like... What's that kid's name? I want his, I want his name. I'm gonna like, I'm gonna go roast this kid. But um, you mentioned um, when you started at the field, this vice president who mm-hmm. ran all these things was a woman. Which mm-hmm. uh, do you feel like? And I don't have any research or evidence to back this up. So I'm. I love questions you. that start like that. Yeah. Right. There are so many fields that um, historically are you know geared towards women or you know primarily uh, populated by women. Do you feel museums are one of those fields? And do you think it, um, it matters as you rise up in a museum where you feel or you see less uh, women in leadership positions? Mm, that is a great question. Um, and it differs by department and museum. And some of that's changing. But um, I mentioned my internship project was interviewing all of these curators. And the gender balance, male to female, then was not equal. There were lots more males in curatorial roles. Although I, th- I think that is changing and, and has changed in some of the fields. Um, and I noticed early on you would see a lot of women in, let's say, children's museums and some women in science centers. But at least at the top, um, natural history museums remain and in some cases remain um, a lot more males in that CEO role. And that's true of history museums and art museums as well. And that kind of skews to what you see traditionally in those fields Mm -hmm. that um, working with children, great, that's geared towards women because Mm -hmm. women work with children every day in the home, right? Yeah, and And those museums have smaller budgets and so therefore uh, attract more women. There's something, I'm going to get serious for a minute, but there's something called uh, the pink collar phenomenon where when you get more women in um, an industry, the wages go down. Or if you're starting with an industry that has um, historically had more women, those wages are typically lower. So lots of good work for us to do in that respect. And it is changing. We have a program called STEM Girls, which is which seeks to help level that playing field uh, in STEM fields for women, which we see often STEM fields are populated by males or geared towards them. Um, and so you talk about science museums, natural history museums, skewing more male like we see in STEM fields elsewhere in history as well. I mean, male is the dominant voice in most history, right? That you, that mm-hmm. traditionally that we see, um, so going back to your first experience at the Field Museum, what was it like working with a woman in a leadership position like that in a place where you say, okay, this is the field I want to be in? Mm-hmm. What was that experience like for you? It was wonderful. And actually, only now that I am closer to the age of the woman I first worked for at the Field Museum can I truly appreciate like how amazing she was at that time. She had been um, one of the only, if not the only, female vice presidents for Citibank. And so, you know, finance, I think, is a, another um, industry that has been, at least at the time when she was working, pretty male-dominated. So she had to fight hard for a lot a lot of things. She was also a single mother, adoptive mother, um, with her son. And so uh, she came to the role really wanting to extend more opportunities for folks, you know, to come up behind her. And uh, it was just wonderful to, to hear some of the stories of, you know, when she had to sort of fight it out as a female finance executive. Um, but also... Also, that lens of equity she really brought to the museum and to many of the women who worked there was was really empowering. Do you feel like you're continuing that that legacy that you are that? Oh goodness, said, I'm trying. <laughs> I mean, you're closer in age to the to the woman that uh, mm-hmm. that you first worked with. That do you feel like okay now you're in that position now you have to be that mentor? Do you, is that something you actively think about, um, or is that? you know, something that just comes innate to you or? It's something I love to do. Um, I, th- I feel 
uh, like I'm paying it back or we're paying it forward, however you want to say that in some ways, uh, because I benefited from so many folks who were willing to, you know, give me an informational interview, speak candidly about what their museum careers were like, uh, and, uh, you know, give me a reference, pass along a resume, those kinds of things. I just feel really privileged to have had all that mentorship. And so it's something I love to do. I still talk with students, um, you know, or interns. I I tend to do the um, networking session with our summer interns here at CMC um, because I love meeting people and networking. And that's something that um, I think can be intimidating for some folks. So I love thinking about and bringing up the next generation. And honestly, I, I love working with people. And it's it's one of the reasons I'm I'm in this role. Um, it's uh, it's one of the joys I think of leadership. Stepping back now, you're an English major. Yes, with a concentration in fiction writing and a minor in religious studies. So practical. My parents okay. were like, "You yeah. are never going to get a job." Uh, that's what I experienced. My dad will continue. He can still tell me exactly where he was when he realized that I was going to major in history. That I was switching majors to major in history, and I said, "I'm sorry, I didn't realize that was such a traumatic experience <laughs> for you." But I'm still the only son that he cannot explain what I do. Uh, he doesn't know what to tell his friends. He just tells them that I work in a museum. So that's that's fine. That's good enough. Yes. But so you had uh, the very practical major of. Of English, yes. Uh, where, what led you in that path? Why did you decide that you wanted to pursue pursue English and fiction writing? Mm. I I still love reading and writing, and I have since my earliest days. So you work in a museum, which is yes. based on fact. Yes. But you were going to major in fiction writing, so you still love reading. Do you read more fiction or nonfiction now? I still read more fiction. Um, but I do read a lot of nonfiction. And I think for me, it's all stories. You know, this, this, I hope it's not too uh, blasphemous to say this, but, you know, what is history in a sense, but the stories we tell ourselves about past events. Um, history always, always has a point of view. And we're, um, I think, realizing that more and more. And storytelling, I think, is the big header for me, whether I'm working with exhibit development, and we're, you know, crafting the narrative arc of an exhibition or writing labels, um, whether we're thinking about education and how how we work with people and, you know, tell them about history or science or, you know, work with them um, around early childhood development or whether we're, you know, looking into our the um, things in our, you know, six million plus specimens and artifacts that are in our collections. Each one of those things, whether it's a fossil or, um, you know, a costume or something from the past has a story attached to it. And uh, I think it's those stories more than anything else that make those things significant. That's really exciting. I'm so excited to hear that because the storytelling is kind of the so what. We had a history curator here. See, technically not his title, not his role. Uh, but Scott Gamper, hmm. he was always, hey, someone has this question about Cincinnati history. And I would say, Scott, what do you know about this? Or can you help with this interview? And he goes, I'm not a historian. And I said, I know, but you know this. And he's like, I can I can, I can, can help out. And so we'd be, he and I would be sitting there and we'd be waiting for a journalist or someone to, to come and speak with him. And he would tell me all these anecdotes. Mm -hmm. And he said, Scott, that's what people want to hear. They don't care about like they don't care about the larger movements of history necessarily. They want those individual stories. They want to know how these larger movements, how it's not about the economy, the economics of the Great Depression and what led to it all this. How did it impact individuals and what what are their stories? And he was so good at that. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that museums can do really well is the storytelling to say we're trying to get across these big concepts and we're punctuating with these stories to show what it looks like, the why it matters. Mm -hmm. I think we can make people care. Um, in ways that um, don't feel as personal. You know, we've been through training about how to talk about big concepts like big swaths of history um, or climate change, you know, these concepts that can be hard to um, translate for the public or explain in understandable ways. And what we um, learn as we look at the research on those things is when you talk about climate change, for instance, if you start by talking about carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, you're going to lose a lot of folks. But when you start talking about here are the songbirds that you love 
love seeing in your backyard that you're not going to see because they're going to have to migrate north to stay in the right climate for them. Or we know you hate picking ticks off your dog when you take your dog for a walk, but you're going to have to do that more because we're going to see more ticks as the climate changes. Those are the things that can help make that science make sense to people. Um, Likewise, in thinking about history, they found that, you know, the analogy that makes most sense to people is thinking about history like detective work. So it's not um, journalism necessarily where, you know, there are these eyewitness things and there's just one account of history. There are lots of different perspectives on history. And like any good detective, we need to go and find all these different accounts and see what we can learn from each new account that we turn up and that taken together, those will give us um, all together a picture of, you know, what happened from the different perspectives at the time. That's something that's really fascinating because there's so much bias in history and we hear bias and we, we often think implicit bias or, or something along those lines. But bias is just see it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about the Boston Massacre. We, we think of it in that way because very quickly that was the narrative that was being told. Those are the visuals. That's the that's the story. But there's another side of that. Um, and so it's being mindful about what are the two perspectives, because depending on which side of the street you were standing on, that night, you have a completely different perspective of what that is. And you would call it something different, but labeling it the Boston Massacre or, um, you know, you talk about Tulsa, the Tulsa, you know, race riots, Tulsa race massacre. What you call it matters and mm-hmm. words matter. So uh, is that something you as a an English major who's putting that degree to work Every single day. Is that something Hi, Mom, that, Dad. That, that you are particularly uh, attuned to and aware of? Do you really like agonize over particular words when you're doing exhibit development and things oh, yes. like that? Yes. I mean, we laugh about this all the time that like nobody knows how much blood was shed over that like, you know, 30 word label. <laughs> <laughs> and we turn ourselves into such knots trying to get it just right. Uh, and the public probably doesn't doesn't realize that. Um, I mean, I think the other exciting thing and tricky thing about language is that it changes frequently, and so um, that's the the beauty of you know continuing to have that critical eye about exhibits, not only that we are creating, but the ones that are there now. So as our language evolves and we get new perspectives on things, we can keep um, updating that and finding new stories to tell, new perspectives on that event, um, and that I think is is exciting about working at a place like Cincinnati Museum Center, too, where we can look at things not only through a historical lens, but also through a scientific one, through a lens of play with our children's museum. Um, We even have an art collection. And so there's really um, nothing we can't do. And I think for, to me, for someone who's lived in London and Chicago and Cleveland, all of which are very museum-rich communities, there are squillion museums in each place. Um, what I like about the Cincinnati model, where you have a Museum of Natural History and Science and a History Museum and a Children's Museum all in one, we have the Holocaust and Humanities Center that is a museum with us here in Union Terminal. We have our sister institution, the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Um, it's just a, it's a very uh, efficient model in some ways because we can all work together to accomplish some similar aims. Um, It's also an endlessly um, broad model in exciting ways because there's really very few topics that we can't tackle. And so I love being able to look at things holistically like that from so many different lenses. Your love of language and storytelling and narratives, this is something else I know about you. Uh, your love of Shakespeare. Yes. Right? Yes. Do you want to have a Shakespeare off? Do you want to see? <laughs> or do you want to take me on a yes. Shakespeare, Cody? Yeah. You're gutsy. I, I think it'd be entertaining. All so, right. Um, we'll just go back and forth. The last person to name a Shakespeare play. Oh my gosh. Is the winner. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Do you want to go first or do you want, I, as the I mean, guest, as, as the guest, you get to go first. I know you're not yeah. big on, on sports ball, which is the other <laughs> the other thing I, I do know about you. Yes. Um, usually I'll just, the I'll, guest gets to go first. Well, and I'll quick antidote and then and then we're doing this. Um I I also have respect for what I call sports ball. 
I just want to make the point. Cast you know, a wide net. Yes, since um, I fully support the Bengals and all of our other wonderful sports teams, I just want to say that I hope kids also get the day off school, and we also have a parade to celebrate when, for instance, Cincinnati Shakespeare Theater wins the regional Tony for regional drama. I just want to celebrate all of Ooh. Cincinnati's assets together. That'd be cool to have like a Tony parade. Yes, wouldn't it? We had Tony Lawson on it <laughs> a couple episodes ago. I think, I think that Tony parade would be pretty cool. But that's really interesting to do like citywide celebrations of other accomplishments. Like yes. if a Cincinnati artist wins, wins a Grammy, why don't we throw them a? a Exactly. And I to say this about my kids' high school, too. I'm like, I'm super glad that we're doing a pep rally to send off, you know, the football team on their state run. I just hope that we also throw one to send off the power of the pen kids to their writing competition, because that's just as exciting. Like, why aren't people painting their chest for debate team? Right. Competitions and things right? like that. Yeah. Model you in. Yes. Stuff like that. Yeah. There's just as much drama there and maybe even like further reaching, you know, skills learned and consequences. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's really let's do it. Some light show, some pyrotechnics at that stuff. Mm-hmm. That'd be cool. <laughs> yes, I love it. Let's Mascots. do it. All right. Yes, Shakespeare off. Okay. Yeah. Ready? Yes. I'm going to start with an easy one. Midsummer Night's Dream. Hamlet. A Winter's Tale. The Tempest. Coriolanus. Othello. Taming of the Shrew. Romeo and Juliet. Uh, two Noble Kinsmen. Sure, that's a thing. Uh, <laughs> King is. Lear. Henry the uh, Fourth, Part One. Henry the Fifth, the Hank Strikes Back. <laughs> There's no subtitle on that one. But is there Henry the Fifth? Yes. Okay, okay, that counts. All right, all right. Henry the Sixth, Part One. Um, uh, hold on, I'm trying to think. I'm which giving one. you hints here. Macbeth. Has anyone said that? No, but now you've jinxed the entire museum. So good job, Cody. You're supposed to call it the Scottish play. So technically, even though we're not in a theater, although we have a theater in this building, I should send you out of the recording studio, make you spit, swear, spin around three times, and only then can you come back in because then you will have, like, unhexed us. When we're all fair, I probably will swear. So (laughs) I've got that part down. Uh, Are we still going? Yes. Okay. Henry the Sixth Part Two. Um, Lady of the Scottish Play. No. It's not? (laughs) I thought it was like a Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man situation. (laughs) Um, Here's my personal invitation to you, since I'm on the board of Cincinnati Shakespeare Theater, to come and see some of the work we do so that you can correct that impression. So one of the plays I did see there was, um, it was Sherlock Holmes, but uh, Sherlock, Mm -hmm. air quotes, you can see this as a visual medium. Yes, yes. was played by a woman, and oh, I, so fun. I can't remember what it was called, mm-hmm. but it was super fun. Excellent, they do some like, they do really, some really lovely fun stuff. I mean, that's one of the things I love about Cincinnati too is that our art scene is so strong between Cincinnati Shakespeare Theater and the Ensemble Theater and the No and Playhouse in the Park. There are, I mean, you can be an actor and or a director and actually live and work and have your family in Cincinnati. And there are not a ton of cities nationwide of Cincinnati size where you can actually do that. And so I love how the arts organizations all support each other here. Um, I remember probably, what, six, seven, eight years ago, we hosted a first folio of Shakespeare's from the Folger Shakespeare Library in support of the Shakespeare Theater's new building in Over the Rhine. And at the same time, um, the Ensemble Theater performed a play called uh, Red Velvet about the first black actor to play Othello, which shockingly didn't happen until like you know, fairly recently in the grand scheme of things. Um, The ballet danced Romeo and Juliet, Playhouse in the Park did Shakespeare in Love. And I just loved how all of the organizations in town supported this great thing happening in the arts community. And you just don't find that really in Chicago or or even Cleveland or other places I've been. So it's one of the things I love about here. It really is incredible that um, the art scene here, there's so much and there, there are so many opportunities that it's almost overwhelming. Like Mm -hmm. if you are not a... If you're not big into theater or you're not versed in it, if you've not been to the ballet, all of these things, it can feel a little overwhelming because it seems like there's so many there's mm-hmm. so many options. And it's one of those things like if you don't eat sushi, okay, I don't eat sushi. I don't like sushi. Oh, Cody. So what is I was I was being hypothetical, but I also uh-huh. I also don't. But <laughs> you say, okay, what's a what's a safe role for me to start with to see if if sushi is my thing, mm-hmm. what's your advice to people who say, 
arts aren't my thing, what's my entry to that? Where would I start? I love this question because I think it's it's easy to do in Cincinnati. Um, one of the things I would say is we have such um, sort of democratic and participatory arts institutions. That we're not like an ivory tower town in that sense, in that, you know, we've got the citywide lights festival called Blink. Like, go to Blink. And that that's art. Like, go check that out and see if there's a performance thing there that you'd like to try. Go to the Fringe Festival from the No Theater in the spring where there are like, I don't know, 10 plays going on, you know, each day of the festival. Tickets to each are, you know, between 10 and 15 bucks. You're going to see something fabulous. You're going to see something terrible. You're going to see things that are middle of the road. But, you know, you're worst case scenario, you're out 15 bucks. Just go try something. Um, there's also a whole bunch of free arts that you can take advantage of. So um, since he shakes, we'll do Shakespeare in the park in the summers. Uh, you can go, if you have kids, you can go to free um, off-the-hill performances from the Playhouse and take your kids to those. Um, you can go to free concerts in the park of the, the Block Party series from the Symphony Orchestra. Um, there are just so many opportunities to take advantage of free things. And, you know, try it and see what you like. Maybe you find that you only like modern dance and not classical ballet. That's cool. Maybe you find that you only like traditional theater and not some of the newer pieces. That's cool too. Like there's something here for everybody in this community and that's what I love. I think that's interesting because you often you tell kids try try this just try it. If you don't if you don't like broccoli, at least you know. Um try this. You have to try different things to figure out if you like them, but it seems like a lot of people don't think that the ballet that that plays um, the orchestra things like that are for kids it feels like a an older refined thing so but then you'll have a kid who knows every single word to a disney song from mm-hmm. from a new film or something like that so they like that they like musical theater they just don't know it comes in other forms mm-hmm. what's your advice for kids what's your advice for parents to get just introduce their kids to it uh, because a lot of those parents may not have been introduced to it mm-hmm. either. So it's kind of a learning experience for both of them. How do you... That's a really good point. Um, because we have the Children's Museum. It's fantastic to introduce kids to the museum, to what a museum can be, what it can look like. Uh, the zoo is a fantastic place to take kids and to show them um, like live science, live animals, mm-hmm. biology. What about theater? How do you how do you introduce kids in a palatable way for them? Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it's so easy. But my kids, you know, have grown up as museum brats and theater brats. They've they've been to all the things. Um, But I started with what was, you know, available near me and free. And so if the kid hates it, then, you know, nothing, nothing lost, but maybe an hour of your time. And most of the companies here, be they, you know, music or theater or dance, want to cultivate those new audiences. And so they have opportunities specifically for kids. And then um, once they, you know, graduate out of the sort of the younger kid programs and, and they actually, you know, need a need a paid ticket, um, I would look into if you if you call up any of the companies and say, you know, do you have any sort of, you know, rush opportunities or last minute ticket opportunities or pay what you can opportunities? Almost all of them do. Um, and, you know, I would check out the local library as well. Libraries are another love of mine. And like for CMC, we have passes that you can check out at any of the libraries to come here for free. And libraries can, you know, bring you all sorts of things. So check those out and see what opportunities they have that might be a fit for your family or your kid. Did you do plays in in school when you were a kid? Oh, yes. Did you you did theater? I, you... I was going to be an actress until the summer before I left for college. I was bound and determined. I was in my first play at uh, actually this is a funny story. So when I was when I was um, 6 uh, in Ohio, I think we were living maybe in in Worthington. I uh, saw, you know, we used to have these public access like channels, and they would advertise for the local community college. I called up the local community college and signed myself up for an acting class. Um, and this was the second time I'd done this. The previous summer, when I was five, I called and signed myself up for an astronomy class. So it was after the second time, we had a conversation about um, using phones yeah. um, <laughs> with my parents. Uh, but I was, you know, the youngest kid in the cast. I think I was in kindergarten. Um, um, but I could read, so they let me stay in. I think I was not really supposed to be there. But um, I remember we were doing sort of a, a mixed-up fairy tale, and I was playing this very old, very grumpy um, fairy godmother. And they gave me a cane and let me, you know, like whack it on the stage. And um, <laughs> it was so fun. And so I said, this is it. I, w- I want to do theater. I want to be an actress. So I uh, was in plays really 
uh, all the way through college. Um, I ended up at a theater camp the summer before my senior year of high school, where I was with 130 other prospective theater majors. And that's when I decided, oh, this isn't actually for me. Because um, some kids, you know, at 18 already had agents and resumes and headshots. Some had already had nose jobs to make them more marketable. And I thought, ah, oh, this is maybe not the, not the field that I want. Um, so in college, I Northwestern has a great student theater scene. I switched over to sort of the business side, um, producing plays, doing marketing, fundraising, um, directing a little bit. Um, And that was really fun. And that actually is what sort of inadvertently led me to museums because I thought, well, you know, I like the business side of doing the arts. And so theater is one thing. I wonder what else is out there. And I feel like museums are sort of adjacent in the arts world. Um, And that's what made me open to that internship at the field that I mentioned and set me on this path. That's amazing. I never knew that about you. Yeah? That is fantastic. Oh, yeah. I've played, uh, my favorite parts were Emily Webb in Our Town and um, Annie Sullivan in The Miracle Worker. Those were both really fun. That's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. I think we should do a staff talent show. I think that'd be a lot of fun. And you you can just utilize the marketing costume closet, which is still pretty robust. Yes, it is. But diverse enough that it you have to really stretch your imagination to make it make sense. <laughs> I love it. Uh, do you have a favorite play? Ooh. Um, I mean, this is going to sound really like cliche, but I love Hamlet. I've seen, you know, 15 or 20 productions of Hamlet. And is one of those productions The Lion King? Uh, ha ha. I guess I've seen 22 or 23 then. Um, very good. Uh, the language in that is just so beautiful. I mean, I love... Um, I love plays that you can you can see it and love it or you can read it and love it um, because I have this dual love of like theater and reading and writing. I love coming at it from both angles. And um, Hamlet is one of those that I think you can just you can see it a million times and still find meaning. That's really fascinating because in school we often we read Shakespeare. We didn't see a lot of performances. We didn't see a lot of plays. We, we saw the Mel Gibson Hamlet. Yes. And we saw the very uh, problematic Romeo and Juliet from like the 70s yes, or something. That's come under recent uh, scrutiny for good reason. Yes. But in high school, we did have a local Shakespeare company. I grew up in a very small town, so I'm very curious. That's cool. I mean, this is one like, of the things I love about Shakespeare. Like, you can be in a big city or a small town, but chances are somebody is going to like bring that to you. I remember being in this auditorium. It was really, it was really a study hall. Uh, we didn't have a true auditorium in our high school. And they, we're doing sword fighting demonstrations and they asked for volunteers to learn it. And I have a twin brother and I was like, we should do it. We, yes. Like we were never in the same classes or anything, but he happened to be in there at the same time was not sitting next to me, but I'm like, we should do it. And I'm trying to call out my brother and it worked. And so we got to like pretend sword fight with real metal swords. It was so cool. I bet you didn't bring that home. And I bet your mother wasn't super annoyed at the school for teaching her sons these skills that they brought into your living room. See, we grew up going to county fairs where you can win those little thin little canes. Oh, so nice. we'd been we'd been honing our sword fighting skills in a very vicious way for a <laughs> long time. And we had two older brothers. So nice. by high school, we didn't have to be like on each other's heels as much. So we had a little more distance and we respected each other a little more. So it probably went better than it could have. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, all right. Back to the museum world. Yes. Exhibit development. Tell us a little bit about what that process looks like because we we had Stacy and we had Brenda on mm-hmm. um, a few episodes back talking about the ancient world's hiding in plain sight gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's your vision for that? When you're approaching an exhibit, what goals are you setting out to achieve? Mm, that's a great question. They're different with different exhibitions. And so sometimes it's a little different, whether it's a science or history or children's exhibition. But I think my goal is always to help people find the wonder and delight in that topic. So I hope we share with them something that they didn't know before. Um, I also think it's really important to think about what they do know and build on that because everybody wants to feel smart. And so I think if they come into an exhibition thinking like, okay, I know this one thing about dinosaurs, and we don't sort of give them a chance to show that off to their whoever they're with or help them feel smart in that way, they might walk away disappointed, even though we were thinking, well, this is something everybody knows about dinosaurs, so let's not include it. Let's include new things. So I think it's important to do both. Start where they are, help them build on that knowledge, and send them away with with new things that maybe they didn't know. And I think um, 
museums can blend that scholarly with a little bit of theatrics. So, you know, in the media we have available to us now, in the immersive design techniques um, and interactives that we have available to us, different ways of treating objects, we can give them that like wow, aha moment that, you know, may change a kid's career choice. Um, If you talk to those who uh, have spent their lives in museums, like most folks, I think, have that moment that made them realize museums are for them. And in most cases, it was a museum. It was a really neat exhibit, um, either a permanent exhibit or one that's coming through that really, you know, made them think differently about the world. And I know for me, I grew up moving every year and a half to three years. My dad was in the telecoms and we just, we moved a lot. And, you know, while sort of books, getting back to my love of language, were sort of my constant companion when I was always the new kid in school, museums were, I think, another thing that helped open up my world and let me see that there was more than just the, you know, in some cases, smaller rural town that was around me. Um, And the museum's role in introducing me to the rest of the world set me on a path for, like, lifelong travel that I've never lost. So I can remember going to the Nelson Atkins Art Museum in Kansas City, where I spent my high school years, and seeing you know, art from far-flung places or jewelry, you know, from an ancient kingdom. And that, uh, you know, looking around Kansas, where I was living at the time, um, that just reminded me that there's a giant world out there. And so getting to live abroad for graduate school, getting to travel, you know, with the Field Museum is, you know, my way of continuing to lean into that wonder about the world. And one of the goals that I have in bringing some of those experiences back to CMC and the other museums I've worked at in helping open up that world for another kid. Kansas City, Kansas or Missouri? Which is which I was is the on true? The, um, both are true. I lived on the Kansas side. What a diplomatic but, answer. Well, Kansas City <laughs> is a city that's bisected by a road called State Line Road that divides the Kansas and the Missouri side. So the Kansas side of Kansas City is a little bit more suburban. Um, the Missouri side is the one with all the famous sports stadiums and museums and things like that. But it was, uh, I mean, similar similar to Cincinnati, River City, similar to Cincinnati. Great commitment to the arts. Great place to grow up. Do you have a favorite exhibit here that you've been involved with, either permanent or or temporary? Yes. Can I give you two? Yeah. Okay. Um, my first one is at CMC, and that is our You Are Here exhibit, which is in the History Museum. And I loved working on that. Um, it's a permanent exhibition and because it is sort of the history of our community, living, working, and playing here. And what I love about it is it changed so much as we were putting it together. So we started out, um, we had worked with some consultants on a master plan, and they'd suggested this concept of what does it mean to be a Cincinnatian? And so, you know, we were trying to, like, grasp that sort of essence of the Cincinnati-ness, you know, what separates somebody who's from here versus somebody who's not. Yeah, that's a tough, that's a big question. It is a big question. And we quickly realized it was unintentionally very divisive because it meant that, like, we were somehow the arbiters of, like, who's a Cincinnatian and who's not. And in talking with many of our community partners who are connected to neighborhood organizations or, you know, faith organizations, um, they said, well, like, sometimes what it means to be a Cincinnati is stealing land and like killing people I'm like oh well that's not I mean that's a piece of it but that's not really what we were looking for for the whole exhibition to be about and what do you think would be more inclusive and you know what we landed on after lots of consultation with them is there are lots of ways to be a Cincinnati I mean of course there are in retrospect it seems fairly obvious and so um you know, you can, you are a Cincinnatian, whether you're visiting here or you moved here yesterday or your family's been here for generations. And so we, you know, in pausing that process and talking with community partners and also asking, you know, what does home mean to you? And are there any objects of, you know, what home means to you that you might share with us? Could you share your photos with us, your home videos? Um, We developed a much richer tapestry than, you know, just what we had in our collections of how our community looks. And so now we do have content in the exhibition, you know, some of it's really fun like what's your Cincinnati food favorite Um, and some of it's a little bit more serious like do you feel welcome here and you know what are some of the struggles that our community has encountered so I think I love that one because the end result is so much stronger than the initial concept we started with and it helped us build so many great community relationships that we continue to to love and work with today Um, so that's my first one it's also divisive in a sense that it asks a lot of those questions that's like all right which is which of these two is your favorite, you know, which is which is Cincinnati's team? Is it the Reds? Is it the Bengals? Is it FC now? Highlighting those different things. And so to imagine that we were going to be able to design a gallery 
that definitively answered any of those questions. And so to your point, we sort of said, tell us, mm-hmm. like, what, what is it to you? It, the name of the gallery became You Are Here, which is, you know, you, whoever you are, you are here. And that means you're a Cincinnatian. And tell us about your experience. What's your second? So this one is not um, an exhibit here at CMC, um, although I tried. Uh, one of my roles at the Field Museum was um, director of traveling exhibitions, and that was exhibitions that we created at the Field Museum and then leased out to different museums around the world. And I will I will say that I, I tried to get them to Cincinnati Museum Center in that role and was never successful, although a couple have come since. But my favorite exhibit in that role was one called Mammoths and Mastodons, Titans of the Ice Age. And I left it because, you know, the Ice Age is just a fascinating topic, and we got to bring together these specimens from around the world, uh, from as far away, you know, as the United Kingdom and France and even Siberia. And there was this beautiful preserved baby mammoth named Lyuba, which means love in Russian, that um, we brought to North America for the first time uh, to be on display. And working with her was a huge learning process for me because the way she'd been found is, you know, as climate change continues and the tundra and permafrost warm, um, more of these specimens that were buried under the frozen tundra are coming to light. And this like 10-year-old reindeer herder found this perfectly preserved baby mammoth poking out of the tundra and um, dug it out and took it to the nearest museum, which was a gulag museum in Siberia, and leaned her up against the wall of the building. And while the reindeer herder was inside, like actually a dog came and like ran away with the elephant's tail, um, (laughs) thinking it just, you know, be tricky. Anyway, so the gulag museum, which, you know, is not about the Ice Age or really any natural history, It's it's a cultural museum, suddenly found themselves in charge of, you know, the best preserved mammoth ever found. Um, She uh, probably wandered into a bog when she was about a month old um, and died, uh, but was perfectly preserved, skin, tissue, everything. And so we had to negotiate with the Siberians to to try and, A, bring the specimen to Chicago to be part of our presentation. And it was my role to convince them to let it remain on tour with the exhibition. And so I needed to work with an interpreter. And we found the interpreter who um, interpreted for, I think his name is Victor, maybe Levchenko, in the Winter Olympics, like the 2000, maybe 10 Winter Olympics. He was the one that called anyone that couldn't do like a quadruple axle, like a sissy man, that that guy. So I had his interpreter. um, And so I said, okay, I've never negotiated with Siberians. Like, how do I do this? And he said, well, you have to remember that they are with a gulag museum, which means they have an extreme distrust for anyone connected with the government. Because if you think of the things, you know, when you were sent to Siberia, you know, during communist Russia, it was not a good thing. People, you know, were sort of disappeared and never heard from again. And so when you say things like we would like to borrow the most precious specimen your museum has ever had and tour it around North America, they hear, I want to take your baby mammoth and like disappear her and never give her back. And I said, well, gosh, that's not what I mean. So he said, you have to, you know, my American negotiating style tends to be like, all right, let's talk about this. We want to borrow the mammoth. We're going to take it to 10 venues. You know, what terms do you need? He said, you can't do that. You have to slow it way, way down and just keep um, doing a very un-American thing, which is like, tell me about all of the negatives here. So like, what are you worried about? Um, oh, yes, I understand. I would be worried about that, too, if I were you. What else are you worried about? And he said, just invite them to get every negative thing on the table. So I go into this negotiation, seven months pregnant, by the way, so enormous. Um, I had a sinus infection that made me lose my voice, so I'm hoarsely whispering to this interpreter, which which may have helped inspire some sympathy for me among these, like, giant, you know, bluff Siberian guys who are there to negotiate for the museum. And so I'm, you know, doing what he told me to do and trying to slow things down and ask about all the anxieties. And finally, um, they said, well, okay, thank you for being empathetic. I I think maybe we could do that thing. And I said, okay, well, what about this other thing? And they said, yes, I think maybe we could do that too. And uh, I don't know if it was because, you know, I was carrying a baby girl inside me that I was really worried about and had a lot of empathy for them as they were thinking about this baby girl mammoth that they didn't want to let, you know, out of their sight. But in the end, the interpreter said, like, this is unprecedented. Go and get a piece of paper and write these things down and give them something to sign. Like, this never happens. Go do it now. So it typed up something really quickly, and we got it done. Um, And she was able to travel to New York and to Alaska. 
Um, and then Russia recalled all of their loans because of a legal case um, in New York about something completely different. So she had to go back. But um, that experience of working in a completely different culture and learning to um, converse and negotiate an entirely new way for something that had never been displayed in North America before uh, was one of, I think, my formative experiences as a leader and something I'll always remember. That's incredible. But it's not unexpected because you're very good at asking questions and conversations. You're very good at having um, people-centric conversations to where you don't you don't come into a conversation with your own agenda that I want to talk about these things. You approach conversations in a really organic way to say, let's see what what they have to say. I'm curious to learn about them. Has that been something that you that's just been natural to you? Because you mentioned you moved around a lot mm-hmm. as it gets here. You're always the new kid, so you're always reintroducing yourself. Mm-hmm. You're always learning about new schools, new mm-hmm. new classes, things like that. Is that where it comes from, or is it mm-hmm. just that's who Whitney is? I think two things. One is I'm just curious about everything. I mean, like this world is such a fascinating place. And so as I've continued to take on new things, like I started here in education and then took on exhibit development and then took on research and collections and now working with the Freedom Center, it's also interesting. And I do, I know it's in my title, but I do love to keep learning. So for me, asking questions is a way to keep activating that curiosity and keep that learning going. Um, second, I think something that also made a huge impression on, on me as I was um, doing traveling exhibitions for the Field Museum is there was this um, period where one of our exhibitions, a copy of our T-Rex, Sue, started traveling around Asia and the Middle East. And I went with her to negotiate contracts, to check out sites. And so each place I went, I needed to learn the cultural diplomacy for that place. And we would work with consulates and embassies to say, you know, um, can I shake hands in this culture or not? If I'm sharing a business card, how do I do it? Do I need to do it with two hands or with one? Teach me five phrases in this language, like hello, goodbye, thank you, this is delicious, you know, and maybe congratulations, just to be a respectful traveler in that culture. And what I learned, especially from traveling in Asia, is sort of the art of hosting, because we were, I remember... Um, walking down a street in Kyoto, Japan, and uh, it started to rain. And shopkeepers, you know, ran out and offered us umbrellas. And, you know, my traveling companion and I said, like, well, we're just passing through. Like, I'm not coming back here. I can't give you this umbrella back. And they said, that's okay. That's okay. You are a guest in our country and our culture. And it is our responsibility to make you feel warmly welcomed. Um, And that was one of like a million examples. I remember visiting Kuwait um, to negotiate a contract with the Kuwaiti Science Center. And the director of the Science Center drove me around the entire country. It's not a giant country, but he spent his entire day, you know, driving me to, you know, to markets, to landmarks, to museums. Um, And people just take it as like a burden on their soul that you are a guest and they need to make you feel welcome. And so I think I really took that concept to heart. And I try, you know, in conversations or in meetings to um, offer that same sense of welcome, that same sense of, you know, doing what I can, either if I'm the host of that conversation or or just a a participant, to help that feel um, like a welcome, easy space, as well as a great opportunity to learn something new. Um, Again, because I love stories and everybody has one and it's just, it's so fun to learn about them. Well, in the spirit of being a good host, you brought in a notebook full of of notes. I did. Are there particular notes or points that you want to that you want to address? Um, I have I stories have a that you've not told. Yeah, yes. hit us with fun facts. Do you um, do you know that I have a list of band names that are gathered from museum vocabulary? That's one of my favorite things. No. Yes. I, I get them. I get my best band names. I'm always dreaming up, like, what's the next museum band name? And I find I get the best ones from listening in, um, particularly to our science curators. So, um, like, Charismatic Megafauna, I think, would be an amazing band name for, like, heavy metal. Yeah. Um, I also love, I think, Death Assemblage, like a, like a death metal band. Like, we are Death Assemblage, um, which is a scientific name for, I should say, Death Assemblage is when you find a bunch of um, creatures that have died in some catastrophic events. So not great for the creatures, great for fossils and science. Uh, Charismatic megafauna are things like mammoths and mastodons that are big, sexy uh, ambassadors for their species. Christine Ingalls is big into to metal, so yeah. death assemblage might be up her alley. Yes. Um, my other favorite one, I don't know if I can um, say this one, but uh, pubic boot, which is like the, <laughs> the name of a bone in a fossil, uh, but makes me think of like a feminist rock band. Like, can't you like see that on stage? Like, we are 
a pubic boot. No, 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 no. I think that'd be great. Um, the the merch for that would be would be outstanding. Yes. Right. Yes. You might have to edit that merch. <laughs> so I'm always no, now we're gonna get now we're gonna get calls for pubic boot. Yes. And people are gonna want. They're gonna want like, that merch. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we've got the girlhood exhibit. I think this would be perfect. But I just, you know, now that, that I've enlisted you, Cody, in my um, band quest, now when I hear a good name, uh, y'all can design the T-shirt. I'm in. Or the poster. Yes, we're in. Absolutely. Yeah. I see. Um, I don't do band names, although that's very good. I used to listen for words in usually larger meetings, words that like people were just hammering over and over and over and then i would try like where you say it so much it's like okay if this was a drinking game we'd all be we'd all have cirrhosis but (laughs) so i'm like how can i naturally get people to say this yes um firewatch was a big one at one point (laughs) as we were preparing to move back into the building the term firewatch came up all the time and so it would it was a joke for me to be able to say you know, to to bait people into saying Firewatch because everyone was so tired of hearing it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, let's do another one. <laughs> and we, so let's make that happen with Charismatic Megafauna. Okay. Because I feel like we might be able to do that semi-authentically at this museum. I love that. That's such a great term. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that that's fun fact one, which is a yes. great one. Top that one. Um. Okay. Two, two things. Um, one, I, I was on College Jeopardy. That's a fun fact. Uh, How'd you do? I got to the semifinals, okay. and I got a little bit of money for graduate school. Nice. I have never been so nervous where I thought I really was going to throw up, um, but like right before I went on stage, I thought, well, this this will be great. I'm going to throw up all over Alex Trebek, <laughs> and like that will be the end of that. Uh, but I did, um, one of the categories I did get was like, Big 12 football conference, and I was like, well, crap. <laughs> Everything was going so well until now. Did you get any right in that? Did you did you buzz in at all? I'm pretty sure no. <laughs> Sometimes I was good at the clues where they give you like verbal clues, like there's a everything ends in e, or they give you a like a word clue that goes along with the trivia clue. I yeah. was decent at those, um, but you know the sports questions kind of had none of that. So, do you remember any of the Final Jeopardy questions you had? Yes, uh, one was um, something about Axis countries in World War II and. Italy was the answer that I did get. Um, I did kind of guess, though. And the other one was about, um, it was like novel to film adaptations. And that's what I was like, yes. <laughs> um, and the answer was Patch Adams, that um, Robin Williams wow. film. I don't know if you remember wow. that one. Of course. But it's it was darker funny. than it needs to be, but yes. Yes, yes. The woman who won um, went to University of Chicago. And when you have to like write your name on the blue screen in Jeopardy, she wrote hers in hieroglyphics because she was an Egyptology major. And that was a little much, like even for nerdy me. Come on. <laughs> I was like, come on. That's so pretentious. I know. <laughs> Of course. Yeah. I can also share a few fun facts about our collections and research. Yes, because, of course. Because I love them. Every every meeting I have with the curators, I'm A, listening for band names. B, <laughs> listening for like that that awesome, like only in a museum moment um, that I feel like we, we abound in delightfully here at CMC. One is I recently learned how to preserve caterpillars. Um, are you ready? Oh, you've told me this. Yes. Yes. Please this share. is great. To, for the benefit of our listeners, you first first you kill the caterpillar or you find the dead one. Then you take a rolling pin and starting at its tail, you gently roll, um, squish its guts out through its mouth. And then using, I hope, a straw um, and like not not a straw, uh, you gently reinflate it. And then we can preserve that in our collections. And we have these like fabulous, like six inch long, big fat. Um, caterpillars that are really cool to see and that's how you preserve them. Isn't I just, amazing? So the thing that throws me off is you kill the caterpillar. How do you kill it without like squishing it completely? But then I'm thinking, are you are you like piano wiring this <laughs> this caterpillar? Do you have to sneak up behind it or like, do you get it when it's when it's cocooned? Yeah. <laughs> Have to ask our entomologists on that one. Uh, 
But I, again, I think like the intricacies of science are endlessly wow. fascinating. Uh, the other thing I learned recently is um, we have a germested beetle colony at the museum. Uh, germested beetles eat flesh. That's what they do. And so when we have zoology specimens that um, are uh, dead, that we want to taxidermy, um, so we've maybe taken the skin off already and we want to preserve the bones, but first we need to get all the flesh off the bones, we can put them in with the domestic beetles who will just do their thing as they do um, and pick the bones uh, clean. And then we can mount that skeleton and, and use it to preserve it. So we have something called the bug barn here that's at Geyer Collections and Research Center, which is about a mile from Union Terminal, but they are really only active in the summers. And so I recently learned that they overwinter in our animal resources area, which has our bats and our hissing cockroaches and our snakes and all kinds of cool things that we use in education programming. But guess what they eat uh, when they're not eating our zoology specimens? Like, guess what they eat over the winter? Hot dogs. Yes. Is it? Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is... <laughs> Of course they do. Why not? <laughs> they have the at least during the winter they have the same um, uh, appetite as toddlers. Apparently, do you know what the museum's hot dog budget is no. by any chance? Because like, how many hot dogs do they eat? No. And Although I do remember, would they enjoy a corn dog? <laughs> like, do we need to change it up for them? I know. I also remember when we were. Um, from 2016 to 2018, when we were renovating Union Terminal, we had to move everything out of the building. And I remember seeing on our move checklist, in addition to all of our classroom supplies and some exhibits we needed to move out and um, office equipment, um, an inventory of our live animal collection. If listeners don't know, we have a live animal collection as well as our preserved collections. And it was like, um, you know, corn snakes, three, um, tarantulas, one, hissing cockroaches, too many to count. Mm. <laughs> Like, is that the job you give the the poor volunteer, <laughs> the, the colleague that you're pranking? Like, I need you to sit here and count how many hissing cockroaches we have because they're never going to stay still. Yeah, that'd be impossible. Now, um, I have been in a situation where counting cockroaches was uh, was paramount. So we, we used to have an event called Bug Fest. Uh-huh. Uh, and I we were doing that. an in-studio interview about it. And the, the person we had doing it put five cockroaches on her. She's kind of got her arms out. She's doing the interview. And I'm... This is Chantal. Yes. Yes, I remember And so I'm standing there watching her. And she's talking and she's doing great. And then I see her eyes dart around and get very concerned. And she's actively listening and starts to answer a question. And I'm like, what is she doing? Like, what's going on with her face? And I realized she was counting the cockroaches. (laughs) Because... She and I could only see four. And so I'm immediately looking all over the floor like, oh, my gosh, one fell off. Like We have a, a cockroach, and these are like almost the size of a Twinkie. Oh Lost God, yes. in the studio. And you just see this panic slowly set in on her face until all of a sudden it pops out her opposite shoulder and crawls around to the front of her arm. And you just see like this sigh of relief. And her shoulders <laughs> just sink. She's so relieved. Because it crawled from one side back around, and I was like, that was hilarious. Yes. I was freaking out. (laughs) But even better, the segment before us was a pest control company. Oh, no. (laughs) And I was like, those- They're just waiting for their moment. They they left too early. We almost needed them. (laughs) Yeah. See, new band name, Counting Cockroaches, which is the cover band for Counting Crows. Yeah, that- (laughs) That seems, it seems you a little moody. Price, folks. All right, last question before you leave. If you could trade roles with anyone in the museum for a day, who would it be or, or what would that position be? Mm. I think it would be really fun to be one of our uh, history curators, even though I would be terrible at it. And here's why. I'll like sit down with their curators to go over something in the database. So they're doing, you know, pulling up test queries to see what comes up. And they're showing me so we can see, you know, is the database working or not? But I'm like, wait a minute. What was that photograph of that vintage car, you know, in front of Union Terminal in like 1945? Like, tell me more about that. And they're like, yeah, but I need to talk about this other thing. So I would be a terrible curator because I would get so sidetracked by wanting to know what everything is and what the story is behind it. 
But if I could do another job for a day, I think that would be endlessly fascinating. You just want access to the to the living Wikipedia that the History Collections is. Is yes. that what you're saying? I mean, I have that access. I have to re- rein myself in from spending too much time there. Because the endless stories, endless wonderful things. That's the joy of being at CMC. It is super fun to, to be in that space. And it's really easy to just kind of wander off and mm-hmm. see what you can see. And then as a museum employee, you have this moment in your head where you're like, Am I allowed to touch that? Yes. And beyond being allowed, could I get away with touching that thing? (laughs) Yes. One last story. When Union Terminal was under restoration, um, Elizabeth, our CEO, had the great wisdom to, as we were moving out the education staff, to move them to our Geyer Collections and Research Center with our curators. And I think everybody was nervous because you're putting potentially the most, like, extroverted population in the museum, in our educators, with um, one of the more introverted populations in the museum and our curators. And I think the curators were worried that we would be at their elbows every day saying, like, what you doing? What you doing? Can I touch it? Can I touch it? Can I touch it? Um, but the uh, combo actually worked brilliantly because you have people who um, you know, are investigating everything in the curators with the people who want to tell everybody about what we're investigating. And it was this, like, beautiful match made in heaven. And I did hear from our curators after the educators moved out and moved back into Union Terminal. They said, you know, I kind of miss their energy. Yes, they were loud. Yes, we were a little rambunctious. But um, it was really nice being all together. So uh, even though we're still in separate buildings, I try to bring some of that good energy and good collaboration between us. So for a day, you'd like to be the history curator so you could have that internal struggle Just so all, I could go, I could one. explore, yeah, so I could explore the stories to my heart's content and go down every rabbit hole. That's fantastic. <laughs> Whitney, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciated talking with you. It's been a delight. Thanks, Cody. Thank you for listening to Meanwhile at the Museum. Remember, if you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe. But more importantly, come see for yourself. Visit cincymuseum.org to see the latest reasons to visit. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to tell us how much you love the show, send us an email at meanwhile at cincymuseum.org. Thanks for listening.